We're going to, uh, Johnny and I, were, he's up next week, we were discussing this morning, we're going to overlap some on the back half of this passage, but it will make, um, it does make it a little more coherent for you all. So I'm going to read and cover a little bit extended into um, chapter 8, or in, into chapter 9, starting in uh, 820. Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you are holy. You are the creator. You are the one to whom all creation holds account. You are the one who shows your character and your heart through your creation. So, Lord, show us yourself today. Show us your heart for us today. Thank you for your word. 
Teach us, Lord. We want to hear and see and know and understand. We want to be reminded of the great things you've done, Father. We want to believe you and the kind of God you are and understand how you feel about us so we can walk with you in peace, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, there's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, we're going to, we're, I'm going to, here's the thing. Most of my sermons, I come up and I know where I, exactly where I want to go. Today, I have a whole lot of notes, and as I was praying all week, and especially last night, I was saying, God, show me what you really want for the church, for, for this passage. And he said, I will. And I said, when? And he said, later. And I said, now would be nice. And he said, no, I'll show you. So he will. So we're going to start by going just through the text, and we're going to draw some key things out and point out some things and uh, explain why I'm wearing this shirt if you haven't figured it out yet. And then, um, and, and, and the, the purpose here is to revisit this passage of Scripture that is one of the major bookends in the story of humanity. What I mean by that is this is the establishment of the covenant, and the covenant is a framework by which you can understand all of Scripture, if you want. It, it's a very consistent, repeated thing that it includes the entire nation of Israel and then is later extended to all of mankind, and this is the beginning of it, and there's a lot of special things about this portion of the covenant. So I thought about doing a covenant sermon, um, and then I went back and I thought, I've taught on this before, and I looked up the sermon from four years ago when I first started preaching at Aletheia, and there was a sermon in Malachi on the covenant, and I listened to that, and I said, that was pretty good. I wish I had remembered all of that, but I already taught it once, and so that recording's out there, so I can't just take those notes and repeat them today. But if you want to do a deep dive on the covenant, uh, look uh, four years back on our website, pull up the YouTube video, and listen to the covenant sermon from Malachi. It's called Christ the Covenant. And you'll learn a lot about just the, the cohesion of the covenant through Scripture. We'll talk a little bit about that today. But there are a couple of things that jumped out here that I think should frame how we consider this passage. Let's go back to 820. Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, when's the last time we saw offering in Scripture? What's well, the only offering before this? You guys remember? Cain and Abel, right? But there was no altar, and it wasn't burnt. So this is different, isn't it? And I, I thought that seemed a little odd, so I went back and I revisited the Cain and Abel uh, offering, and it's an interesting phrasing, the way they use it there. It says, Abel brought some of his uh, flock to the Lord as an offering, and the Lord was pleased and accepted it. doesn't say anything about burnt, doesn't say any, anything about an altar. And it says, Cain brought some of his, but it wasn't acceptable. And we covered that some with Cain and Abel. So there's something different about this offering. It has an altar, it's burnt, and the resulting uh, phrase that we get here is, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The pleasing aroma. And that's a strange phrase. So I said, well, where, where does that phrase come up? The pleasing aroma is used over and over and over to describe God's reaction to offerings as it's explained all through, as offerings are explained all through Leviticus and Numbers. And that phrase really doesn't come up again 
until the New Testament. We'll cover that in a little while. Then God said, I will never again curse the ground. When had He cursed the ground? Adam and Eve in the fall. He didn't curse Adam, He cursed the ground. He said, I will never again curse the ground. But it says, it says the Lord said this, and it says He said it in His heart. He says, I will never again curse the ground, and He's saying this in His heart, because the heart of man or the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That just seems like a, a weird reason to decide not to curse the ground, doesn't it? And I thought, where have we seen this contrast of God's heart and man's heart before? It's back in Genesis chapter 6 at the beginning of the flood. So prior to the flood, if you look at 6, 5 through 6, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So we see man's heart being full of wickedness, a, a depth of depravity that's even beyond what, what we are familiar with. And it grieved the Lord in his heart. So you have this contrast of embracing wickedness and grief at wickedness. And then you have here this other heart-to-heart -heart contrast where the Lord relents in his heart because he's acknowledging what man is. Man's heart, his intentions are evil from his youth. Now, you've heard me say this before. This, this is not a popular message in postmodern American evangelical Western culture, is it? This is not... Disney culture, where they say, every, if, you, if you ever need anything, just look into your heart and it's there for you. Listen to your heart, follow your heart, do what your heart says. I've said it before, that's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. Why? Because our hearts are wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart of man is desperately wicked. And we don't even like that, and we can't shake it, can we? Even when we know we're wicked, and we know the right thing to do, it's really hard to do it. In fact, it's not natural to do it. It's foreign to us to follow what we know is good and right when our heart desires something else. It says, uh, Paul tells us there's a, there's a renewing that happens in us through the Spirit or else we really have no real hope to have that, that good in us because it doesn't come from us, it comes externally. Yet God's oriented our hearts and our souls to look for what is good and right and beautiful, and we love it when we see it. We respond to it. We've talked in recent sermons about you know, what, what was the, the best moment that you can remember of, of your being the, the kind of person you wish you could be all the time, and, and it, there was a uniformity as we thought about that because it was when we showed a selfless heart towards somebody, when we showed great tenderness and compassion, demonstrated love. That's like, it's like this out-of-this-world victory. Speaking out-of-this-world, didn't you guys see uh, Richard Branson made it to space this morning? That was cool. I was live-streaming it while I was trying to get in the car this morning. So we have this um, contrast of heart. So this whole passage, all the way through this covenant, what God is doing is He's telling us about His heart. That's the whole covenant through Scripture. He's showing the kind of God that He is. 
Now, this is post-disaster here in this passage. There's, a, there's been a, a catastrophic wiping clean of the slate. I can only think of a couple of other times in Scripture where God wiped something clean to, in order to either end it forever or replace it with something better. One is Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to say too much on that as much as I'm tempted to because I'm hoping to... That, by the way, just a side note, housekeeping. I had said when we started Genesis, we would probably go to chapter 12 and then break for something else and then come back. I've had a few different people come to me and say, we don't want to break. Let's just keep going. So if that's okay with you guys, we're just going to keep going and we're going to get uh, Brian preaching his infamous passage sooner rather than later. Um, so we... Uh, so I, I want to teach more on Sodom and Gomorrah later, uh, so I don't want to ruin it all now, but I, the, other, the other one that came up is there was a whole generation of Israelites in the wilderness that God said, we're not doing anything until this whole generation dies. And you know what that generation was? was the covenant generation. It was the generation that had received the covenant from God in the wilderness, and then they had sinned against him, and God said, you know what? None of you get to go to the promised land, with one or two exceptions. Not even you, Moses. So I think it, let's, I want to revisit those and say, what, what was the heart of God in those covenants? Because we're talking about the first covenant here, and see the consistency of the heart of God between those covenants, and what it was about our response that made the covenant fall to Him. So first of all, what's a covenant? Johnny gave us some really great summary of this. Um, there are lots of different theories and thoughts around the covenant, and uh, the one, one definition of covenant that I really like, if you want a good book on the covenant, by the way, um, Christ the Covenant, uh, O. Palmer Robertson is a, a good one. He defines it as a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. You can also call it a pledge to the death or a life and death choice. So do we see all those elements here in this passage? Well, first, let's figure out which portions of the passage are the covenant. So, God makes a declaration, the part we just read, where, he, where he, he smells the offering and He makes a decision in His heart. So, there's a decision or a declaration that He makes there, but that's not st strictly the covenant. Then God blesses Noah at the first part of chapter 9, and then down later in chapter 9, then He makes a covenant based on what He's just said and He charges. Noah and, and his offspring with their side of the covenant. Now, the thing about a covenant is it's a unilateral, it's a unilateral responsibility with bilateral parties. So, the covenant requires that each party is faithful whether or not the other party is faithful. And that's how, that's how God sets this up. So, let's look at the blessing portion. God blessed Noah. I'm at the beginning of... Uh, of chapter 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, he's giving them something. This isn't the first time he said that. He, already, he also said this to Adam and Eve in the blessing in uh, Genesis chapter 1, right around verse 28. We know some things went wrong. They filled the earth, but they filled it with the wrong kind of thing. The earth got filled with violence and depravity and abomination and a bunch of beings that shouldn't have existed, and it got, it got awful and it was a disaster. So then God wiped it clean, and now He's charging Noah with a repetition of that original blessing, be fruitful and fill the earth. 
One way of looking at this is he's blessing them with land and dominion and territory. The next part of dominion is the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. He's giving them all the living things of creation. That's slightly different from the original blessing in Genesis 1. Then he provides for them by expanding what it is they can eat. In Genesis chapter 1, he had given Adam and Eve what? Every green thing. Yeah, every green thing. Well, here he says, every move, I'm in 9.3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So he gave them all the animals to eat with a couple of rules. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. So he says, don't eat things. Now, there's, there, there's a, I'll share it with you. There's a disturbing element to this because some of the pagan cultures at the time had a practice of preserving meat by eating an animal and keeping it alive over time, which is horrible. And they would suffer tremendously. And God said, don't do that for good reasons, because it's cruel. And also, he says, let's not make blood a thing that you eat. There's a problem here, though. You go to John 6, which we'll get to in the end, and Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And why does he say it? Well, he says it right after the, the, the people come to him and say, how must we please God? And what will you give us to eat? Because he had just demonstrated his ability to provide for them. And Jesus goes straight back in spirit to this passage, says, please God, by believing in the one he has sent. And they said, well, our father's got manna in the wilderness. When we please God, what are you going to give us? And he says, me, I'm the bread of life. And then he takes it a step further and says, in fact, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what happened after that? Most of his disciples left him because it's so, it, it goes back to the original concept of, of man and, and what it is. So I, we can't really end today without figuring out why would Jesus say something like that that goes directly in the face of this? Is he changing the covenant? Well, I think there's a hint in the very next verse, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. From man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whose lifeblood reckoning was the requirement for our life? That's what Jesus did. God's saying, I'm going to require a payment for life and it's going to be from a man, and it's going to be the reckoning for life, and it's going to involve blood. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is this little poetic excerpt here. He's reminding them of what they are. Do you remember when we talked about being made in the image of God, and we were trying to answer the question, what did God make when he made us? It's a hard question because he made us in his image. And that, that word is, is, it's a really, really, really tough concept to say in his image. 
And it's even difficult in English because in can mean a lot of things. And the Hebrew is not terribly different. Uh, Heiser does a good job explaining the difficulty of this passage, so I'm borrowing a little bit from his concepts. But you can say, this is in the box, and that's talking about the location of something. You can say, this uh, vase is broken in pieces. It's talking about the condition of something, not the location of something. Or somebody says, you know, Joel, what do you do for a living? I work in the field of finance, which is talking about my, my role, what I do has nothing to do with my location or condition or secondarily, but I'm describing something. Well, the word here is similar. So when they say, we made man, let us make man in our image, and God made man in his own image, it's a pretty comprehensive thing. It's not just what we are, and you can't limit it to, well, somebody who can create and kind of reflect and do some of the things God can do. Because then you're stuck with, well, what if a human being can't do that? Are they no longer in the image of God? Is a baby in the womb in the image of God if it's not creating and communicating? Well, of course it's in the image of God. All right, so the image of God must be bigger than just what can we do, what kind of capacity do we have? It has a lot to do with what our purpose is, being in the image of God, what it is, that, the reason He put us here. The reason He put us here, He just described. We are to extend His reign through the earth. We are the imagers, the reflectors of Him on earth. And that's a divine thing. The problem is He made us in His image with a, a, a will, and we take that will and we say, I like this image, but I don't want it to be part of that image. I'll just be my image on my own. And then we start extending our own godness through the earth, and that's called sin. Anything you do that's not acknowledging that there, there is a God and you're not Him. And so we get this broken thing, and He built us in these, these vessels where there's an inherent conflict because we're made of dust, and if you remember, dust in Scripture is death. So we have this divine calling, this eternal requirement but we're completely unable to do it because we've disconnected from God. We have every intention of our heart being evil from birth. Also, our bodies don't work very well for very long. And the world's full of death and decay and disease, and we can't separate ourselves from it. And yet... He gives us land and dominion and provision and blessing. Do you think God doesn't see the inherent conflict here? Do you think he, He's unaware that this is going to be a really, really hard life to live? Do you think He doesn't know that, that sense of frustration and tension that you feel even thinking about this, going, what is this, a joke? I can't, I can't do this. In my best moments, I sort of get it a little, and those moments are brief and far between. The rest of the time, I'm either 
feeling bad for not doing a better job or feeling angry that everybody else isn't doing a better job. Kind of sums it up, right? And you look around and everybody has an opinion and an idea and, and is pr often far too willing to, to preach it on how everybody else should be doing this. And we can't. And God sees it, and that's why he says from, a fellow, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Everything that we are is reckoned unto God. Scripture says that in several places, all things will be reconciled to Christ, will be reckoned to God, and he says it's going to be a very, very expensive requirement. Then he commands us and you, this is the, the charge to us, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And he actually tells them, fill the earth, subdue it, it's a, when he's extending it. He says, increase, multiply, go throughout the earth. In two weeks, I'll be up talking about Babel and why that was a problem when they all said, how about we all get together instead of filling the earth so we're not scattered across the earth and let's return to something. Then God said to Noah, and his sons with him. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. He's establishing a covenant with all of creation. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So it's the first time there's a covenant. It's the first time there's a, it's not the first time there's a blessing, but it's the first time there's a covenantial command to, to man and their side of the covenant. And it's the first time God says, this is what I'm going to do. And it's written in blood and I'm going to require it from you as men and I'm going to require an honoring of the blood and the lifeblood. And he puts a sign. And he says, I've set my bow in the clouds. Now, I'm just going to point out just to make everybody uncomfortable that it never actually says rainbow. But we don't know of any other bow in the clouds. So it seems to us that it makes sense that it's a rainbow. And it does make sense with the text. I'm not saying it's not a rainbow. I just thought that was interesting. Because that word's not actually in scripture. But he says, I set my bow in the clouds. So he's his sign. There are two things in Scripture that are called a sign of the covenant. First is the rainbow. That's the one that God sets. And then man is charged with a sign of the covenant. Any guesses? Close. Circumcision. So I didn't wear that T-shirt. I didn't want to upset everybody. Um, Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the only other place where this phrase, just to make everybody very uncomfortable, that where this phrase where, that I emphasized when I was reading it, cut off. That's also in the circumcision passage, but it's not what you think it is. It's, he says, anybody who won't do this shall be cut off from his people. That phrase isn't used very much at all. It's used here. Here one time, and one time in Genesis 17. 
Three times in this passage, he says, sign of the covenant. One time, anywhere else in the rest of the Bible, in the Old Testament, he says, sign of the covenant and that circumcision. Those are the two signs. Johnny's going to explain all that to you next week, right, Johnny? <laughs> Johnny can do whatever he wants with this passage. This is just me. Um, so I want to revisit. I said there were a couple of times where God had destroyed or wiped something clean and come back to restore it, replace it, or leave it wiped out completely. Because in this flood, we had Genesis chapter 6. We had the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they intermarried with them, and there were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and it was a problem. And that was where God said, we're wiping all this out. And he only preserved an element of it, and it was an element of righteousness and an element of uh, that pure bloodline. The two other times are related. They're related. First, we'll cover uh, briefly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Why would he say, I'm going to wipe this out completely? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is not what everybody thinks it was. It was, but it was more. What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Who were, who was the, the, I'm trying to speak carefully with the children in the room. The men in Sodom and Gomorrah demanded carnal relations with what? With people of God walking in human flesh. You see the problem? It goes back to that Genesis 6. They insisted on it, and God said, we are wiping this out. Now, there's more to it, but I want to plant that seed in your mind so that you can keep that in mind as we approach Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll find as you go through Scripture that Sodom and Gomorrah is often referenced in juxtaposition to Genesis 6 and other parts of Scripture, including in Jude and some other places. So you can't remove that supernatural element and still have it make sense or else you get this really bizarre decision to wipe something out here, but not lots of other places that it happened all around the world. But that particular issue was a problem. It's also very related to the Tower of Babel, because the people were saying, we want to build a tower and come back, and we want to put its top in the heavens. In the he so we want to return to these heavenly relationships that we've been having. That's what they're trying to do, and that's why God came down and said, no, no, you guys got to stop this. Same thing he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He came down, he said, there's been an outcry against this place. That's got to make you ask who's crying out. There's been an outcry against this place. I want to see it for myself. He sees it and says, we're going to destroy it. The other time he lets an entire generation die out. Now, the, 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 there are other uh, examples in the Old Testament where he tells Joshua, wipe out this civilization and that civilization and this other civilization and leave nothing. All of those were Nephilim-related civilizations. All of them were, uh, were known to be bloodlines of giants. And um, the remote, But most civilizations, he didn't say to do that. It was just those specific ones that he said to wipe out. But then there was one time where he said to his own people, we're going to let this whole generation die. And that was, uh, you can read the whole thing in Numbers 14, but what happened was he gave his people a, um, a command 
in the, or, or a covenant in the wilderness. Remember, they're in the wilderness. Wilderness just means the death land outside of Eden. So now they're outside of Egypt. He's drawn them out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. He meets with them all supernaturally, gives the commandments, gives the covenants, um, and they sin against him. What was that sin? A lot of us think, and I heard somebody mention it, a lot of us go, it's the golden calf, right? Well, there, that was a sin, but that wasn't the sin that he said would wipe them out. What was the problem? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Moses. This is with the new generation that has risen up after God wiped out the old generation. So this is right before they go to the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses reminds them of this. Yet, I'm in verse 32. In spite of this word, meaning everything God had shown them, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and cloud by day to show you which way and what way to go. He had shown them 40 ways from Sunday who he was and what kind of God he was and how he was protecting them, and they didn't believe him. And when the Lord heard your words, he was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. They had an attitude problem. They had a belief problem. Let's go to uh, Numbers, right before Deuteronomy, chapter 14. The whole chapter of Numbers 14 goes into detail on what was going on there. But there's a verse in particular, I think, if I'm thinking of the right one. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And he actually proposes to Moses there, I will wipe them all out and make you a nation. And Moses said, please don't, I don't want to do that. And, they, and God agreed, and instead he said, I will let this whole generation die out and we'll raise up a new generation. So what's the common theme here? We've got God who's looking at the people and he's giving them everything they need and they have a specific role that they're supposed to fulfill and they won't do it. And he, and he swears in blood oath that he will take care of them and that he will reconcile them and that he will reckon with their lifeblood and he charges them with what they're supposed to do and yet they continue to fail. And the failure of the covenant, the righteousness that he's really looking for is belief. He wants them to know what kind of God he is. And that we could go there now, we don't have time. In the covenant passage with Abraham, when he covenants with Abraham, why was Abraham so righteous? Because he believed God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's where the righteousness was. Why were the people of Israel so sinful? They didn't believe him. So what God is showing here is he has a heart for his creation. And there are 
others who are rebellious against God, who have a heart to destroy His creation, probably because for a variety of reasons, they really don't like the amount of grace this creation is being shown and that they're being given everything. They're being given everything, not just the plants, but also the animals and now the earth and all the land. And they don't like what's going on. They don't like what God's doing with this, this mankind race He created. And He's created this, this tension that we live in to this day where we see good and we know good and we're not sure how to get there. Let's have the worship team come up. I'm going to give you a hint. There's one other pleasing aroma in Scripture besides burnt offering. Just one. Paul mentions it in a couple of places. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's the only other fragrant offering besides the burnt offerings. And then in 1 Corinthians, actually 2 Corinthians, Ah, we don't have time. Let's not go there right now. I'll bring it up after the, uh, or during the response time. So trying to pull all this together as we look at these bookends of Scripture, why the covenant's necessary, what's going on, where we are in the scope of human history, what He's created, what the symbolism is, how He's creating these signs, and the one thing it's showing is the kind of God He is and that He can be believed. That's what He really wants from us. And there's really no other, um, there's no other plan. There's no plan B for us. Our salvation is in belief. Now, the neat thing about that is that's something we can do. We can't walk out the law perfectly. We can't do everything just right. We can't walk in perfect righteousness in and of ourselves, but we can believe God. We can trust Him because the beauty of belief and trust and faith in God is that it's okay that it includes uncertainty. That's the beauty of it. What does He ask us? What is faith? Let's be certain of what we can't even see. He said, the Israelites could see me. He said, I, I, I showed up. I chiseled the law out of stone. With my own finger, I wrote it. They, they heard my voice. They saw my cloud on the mountain. They saw me by day and by night. I was always there, and they were scared to death. And they had a, a righteous fear of me, and they didn't believe me. So he rose up a whole new generation. And then he tells us that, He's going to take care of it with blood from fellow man. And the one thing, when we get all the way through to Jesus' ministry, and the Israelites are still 
trying to figure this out, and you can keep your Bible open to John 6 if you want, because we're going to spend a little time here. Jesus is doing these things. He's feeding people miraculously in the wilderness, just like Israel was fed in the wilderness a long time ago. He's walking on water, and they're trying to figure out, what do we have to do? Then they, come to, they came to Christ, John 6, 28, and say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Because he's the only answer. Let's sing together. I'll come back and lead us in communion and wrap up with some more from John chapter 6. The tension that I was describing earlier, that, that frustration in which we live is this frustrated agony of the just life and death being in the same place. I was talking with my children about this passage, about the, uh, the burnt offerings, and my daughter, Jalene, said, how could God be pleased with an animal being killed and burned? It's frustrating, isn't it? How can that be a beautiful fragrance? And you go through the, we've been going through the uh, uh, Exodus and Leviticus, especially the Levitical passages that describe all these sacrifices, just these detailed dis descriptions, and they're kind of gruesome. And I think it's okay to say this life, our day-to-day, -day, and a lot of what we feel is a, a little bit of a recoiling at this gruesome reality that we have. People die. People take what's right, wrong, and, and what's right and call it wrong, and what's wrong and call it right, and to where you can get people upset just by the T-shirt you wear or don't wear. And and and, and there's no there's no there's no in between. There's no middle ground. And there's and and it's it's this worshiping of what shouldn't be, and this this uh, embracing of of what shouldn't be, and this rejection of what should be. And you get broken relationships and death and sickness and decay and lies and lies and lies and lies. And we're all very, very tired of it. We're very tired of it. Moses lived with it for, or Noah lived with it for hundreds of years. And then saw one, the, the single greatest massacre and then still had to continue to live it and walk it out. And probably, I, I suspect that part of why he developed a drinking problem later on was he's watching this and going, these people aren't better. They're not better. The problem's not fixed. The flood didn't really solve it, did it? Because we're all living post-flood. Some things are better. Some things are. But Jesus says by the time he comes back, we're going to be back where it was pre in the pre-Noah days. So you guys feel it? You feel that, that frustration of death and life and, and the tension and, the, and, and the, the, just the, the, what do we do? And I had said earlier, well, you have to believe. And it's believe in what? Believe in what? I alluded earlier to a passage in 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, you may. 2 Corinthians chapter 2.
Remember how we had read earlier that Christ was the fragrant sacrifice to God. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life so you can look you can have two different people look at the same thing and to one it's a stench of death and to the other it's life And the heart of God is that he's willing and able to take on all of it and call us to life. In other words, what God is saying to us is death isn't too big for him. The lies are not too big for him. The the masses of people who would reject and turn from him and call what what is right ugly and call what is ugly right... All that is not too big for him. He has it taken care of. But it's not going to be through us lifting ourselves up and exalting ourselves and saying, go out this week and do a little bit better and try harder. It's not going to be that. It doesn't work. Even when we get a full reset, it doesn't work. So let's turn to John and see what Jesus said about it. Back in John chapter 6. And Jesus is talking to these very confused and frustrated people. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember, we just, we just discovered where flesh shows up in the covenant for the first time. And the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So who's the only one who solves for the conflict between death and life? It's Christ. And is it any wonder then that he should be so repugnant to those who don't want him? So repugnant to those that say, I won't do that. I can't have that. I won't eat that. I can't depend on that. There's got to be a better way. Somebody who says, really, I I," think about the Israelites. I I have to take this 
this, this lamb and slaughter it and burn it, and that pleases God? Well, this lamb didn't do anything. I can tell you that would not go over well in my household. We have tears over when I have to kill a wasp nest. I can't imagine if it was a lamb. And that's good, and that's a beautiful thing. I love that in my children, that, that, that they treasure life so much. But it's outrageous, isn't it? It's outrageous, this, this outrageous life that we live, this outrageous tension that we live in where we, we've got this, this divine call and this incapable body, and we, and we have this, this, this drive to find what's good and beautiful and right and, and be able to show and possess it to the world, and we are terrible at it. And so is everybody around us. And there's one answer given in Scripture, only one answer. And it's the heart of God as He shows us in Christ, who said, I've got it. I'll take all that on. My death is sufficient. My blood is sufficient. God's requiring for the life of mankind, He's going to require the lifeblood of man. Jesus was the man. He's requiring it. And Jesus said, I'll do it. And then he says, hey, good news. If you will have me, then I will be in you. And you're going to start to see some of that beauty and life that you've been craving and looking for. It's going to start showing up in you. And it's going to baffle people. And it's going to be your joy. Your joy every time it happens and your frustration every time your, your own nature takes over. And he says, that's good. I want you to repeat that and repeat that and repeat that and repeat that until you know that you must have me and nothing else. And then you can live forever with me. That's what he tells us. And he says, all this stuff that hurts you, all this pain and frustration and sickness and death and decay that, that drives you crazy through your life, don't worry. It's not here forever. I've already paid for it. I'm going to wipe it clean. Oh, and you're going to get a whole new body. And you're going to live with me. And you're going to, then you're going to see what beauty really is. And they talk about those rainbows in heaven being permanent. The day will come where it will pass away. Remember in the passage where God said, as long as the earth exists, then sun and moon and day and night and cold and hot will be here. If you read the last chapter of Zechariah, a day comes where that's not true anymore. He says there's a day where there is no day and night. It's a, it's a pretty awful day, but it means it's happening. And guys, brothers and sisters, we're getting close. We're close. We're close. That's why we're living in this higher and higher humming, singing, whining tension. Let's take communion. It's the reminder of Jesus' flesh and blood. It's what he calls us to, to believe in him. And we need to pray and talk to him, and we need to worship him, because one of the best things we can do to believe in him is to remember what he's done for us, and that's what these songs so often do. They remember and they remind us of who he is and what his heart is and what our heart to him should be, and that's a beautiful thing, and it's a fragrant offering to him. Let's continue to worship together.